Don't get old, people. Wow. Man. Well, I mean, it is better than the alternative, but I got to say, some days, I feel it more than others. And it's all around, and you feel it even more. So, tonight, we start our third Bible character in the Profiles of Perseverance series. We started back in July and August with Joseph and how he kept moving forward while responding to rejection and loss and a whole lot of waiting. And then in September and October, we talked about David and how while he was persevering and waiting to become king, he had a heart of hope and was open to instruction. So this month and next month, we're going to talk about Nehemiah. That's the last one we're going to talk about in this particular series. Nehemiah was a leader who prayed and worked while praying while he was waiting for the job to be done. God had promised Israel that if they obeyed him, he would bless them as a nation. And if, he did, if they did not, then he would judge them and cause them to be taken into captivity. And as God had forewarned, his hand of judgment fell on Israel because of their sins, which we actually saw back and forth quite a number of times in the early Old Testament. They couldn't quite get that together, could they? So we finally see where in do somewhere before Ezra, so a little ways, at one point, the northern kingdom, Israel, falls. And they're taken into captivity by the Assyrians. That was around 730 B.C. And then the Babylonians brought about the fall of the southern kingdom, Judah, around 590 B.C. The Israelites in the northern kingdom were pretty much absorbed into Assyria, and they eventually kind of into their culture as well. But the people in the southern kingdom remained intact in Babylon. And after the power of Babylon was broken by the Medes and Persians around 539 BC, many Jews returned to their homeland. In 538 BC, that first group returned to Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel. That was in Ezra, first couple of verses in Ezra chapter 1. So they go. And over a period of years, and tremendous opposition from the Samaritans. The returnees are eventually successful in rebuilding the temple around 510, 515 B.C. Ezra the priest then leads another return to Israel and restores worship in the rebuilt temple. And Nehemiah also returned in around 440 B.C., 14 years after Ezra's return to Jerusalem. And God uses him to guide Judah in rebuilding the city's walls and to reorder some of their social and economic lives, kind of get them back on track. What we've been trying to do for the last several months, right after a pandemic, trying to get us all back on track. He accomplished something incredible in a very short amount of time. He stayed dependent on God, and he stayed focused on his task. He persevered to accomplish this one goal, the major emphasis of a whole book named after him, right? The whole book of Nehemiah. It's a personal account. It's like a journal. It's his diary. Only, you know, he doesn't put little hearts in it and stuff. 
Like we would, you know, not little scribbles on the side, right? But it's his personal account written by Nehemiah himself. We don't know anything really about Nehemiah's childhood, his adolescent years, or even much about his family other than his father's name was fill in the blank. H-A-C-A-L-I-A-H. That's his father's name. And then one brother, Hanani. So that's about all we know about him beforehand. Um, we start out in the beginning of Jeremiah of Nehemiah. Okay, so when I was doing this, I can't tell you the number of times I started typing Jeremiah instead of Nehemiah. Because Jeremiah is the one you're used to, and it's a regular word, right? You know, I know people named Jeremiah. I don't know anybody named Nehemiah. And so I just kept catching. So I'm going to say that probably multiple times. If I say Jeremiah, I clearly mean Nehemiah. Folks on Spotify, Jeremiah equals Nehemiah in this setting. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Yeah, I got my voice back, which you all noticed on Sunday, I'm sure. But um, it's still not real happy. So I'll do this as long as I can. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of that man. And it came to pass in the month of Chislo in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. So now he's basically repenting for his entire nation. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which have commandest, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, Though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. So, starts out, 
He's employed as the cupbearer to the king. King Artaxerxes. I think that's right. Artaxerxes. I worked on that one. That one I think is right. The cupbearer's responsibility was to taste the king's wine before it was served, make sure nobody had poisoned it. How would you like to have that job? Right? I would think you would not give this to somebody you really trust, but you would, like, keep all of your prisoners lined up somewhere and make one of them drink each time. And if they didn't die, then it wasn't poisoned and they got a reprieve, right? Um, but no. No, this was this man's responsibility. And back in these days, you had these monarchs who the only way you could remove them from office was to kill them, unless they died naturally. And so the usual method, makes sense, would have been poison in his food or wine. And so this was a pretty dangerous job. And he had to be a man of integrity and trustworthiness because the king relied on him to keep him safe. I don't even know that I would call that a good, like, job security kind of a position. Because one day it just happens. If it happens, it happens. You're done. Right? They weren't back in the day when they could pump your stomach and fix it or anything. You're just kind of stuck, dead. The king relied on him. He must always be above suspicion, keep the king's trust. If the king would grow suspicious or distrustful, then the cupbearer's life could be in danger. And they wouldn't only maybe lose the job, but they could actually lose their head. So this is Nehemiah, which means he's around the king, okay? So he's just prayed to God, grant me mercy in the sight of this man that I work for, okay? So we see that he's gotten some not-so-good news from his brother and these other folks that he's talking to about the Jews that have returned to Jerusalem, he just wanted to see how they were doing. How's it going? You know, was it a good trip? How's the new job? You know how it is when you, people have left. You want to see how they're doing. He's obviously upset by the news because the scripture says he went straight to Facebook and posted all about it. And then he created a Facebook event to invite people to a vigil where they could trade stories about the Jews that were involved and they could cry and rage about the injustice of it all. No, he didn't do that. No, he didn't. It says he wept, he mourned for a number of days, three to four months actually, mourned, fasted, and prayed. Now, I'm going to assume he didn't fast food and water for three to four months because he's still alive. But the prayer definitely was going on for three to four months. And he's in mourning. He's sad because his home where their, their identity is based. They, this God had given them this, and now it's torn down. It's just, it's, it's in disrepair. In verses 5 to 11, he acknowledges the sin of the people, asks God to remember that covenant with Moses, that if they would turn back to him, God would gather them again and, and bring them all back to that chosen place, and things would be good. Lord, hear our prayers and grant mercy. He speaks of God as the great and awesome God. In a couple of other verses in Nehemiah, he uses the word terrible, great and terrible God. If you look that up, 
terrible, of course, can be terrible, but it also brings about that idea of this really solemn awe, this reverence, okay, how great he believed God was and was acknowledging that and trying to portray that to the people. Then we get into chapter 2, and now we're in the month of Nisan. So this is where we've been about three to four months past when he found out what was going on in Jerusalem. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. So up until now, he's not been all droopy, I'm so sad. You know, he hasn't been doing that mess. He's been his normal self in front of the king. Wherefore the king said unto me, so, but this time he's sad. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? There is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I will be very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? And the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So, King asks him this, and he doesn't just start thinking about what he wants. The first thing he does is he says a prayer. Okay, now it doesn't really say if he says it out loud or not. I don't know if he's, like if they're like standing next to each other and he prays out loud or if he prays in his mind or maybe the king asks him this and there's a little time here, I'm not sure. But he prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said unto the king, if it please the king and thy servant have found favor in thy sight that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, for how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So he's gotten this report. He prays for three, four months. Now God has answered his prayer okay nehemiah's prayer and his actions are illustrating two aspects of trusting god you have to trust him as you step forward and do you do your part his way and you have to do trust that he'll do his part in the areas over which you have no control these two aspects of trusting god are necessary to act on what he's placed in your heart so god took care of his part by directing the king's heart and mind to be favorable to Nehemiah. Nehemiah asked for the letters for all the authorities and the materials that he needed. That was Nehemiah doing his part, making the request, kind of having a plan, okay? He didn't say, I don't know, God. What do you want me to do? He had thought about this and was trying to be wise about what he was doing. So he did his, his part. God did his part. And the prayer is now answered. We go on down in Nehemiah. So all that time, 
he knows Jerusalem's in disrepair. The walls are down. What does it mean when the city's walls are broken down? I mean, back then, that was serious for us. You know, I look out my back door, and I have a little chain link fence. And I think sometimes, ooh, I want to put up one of those pretty white ones. You know, those, those white, shiny ones that look real pretty around a house. I mean, I don't want to know what they cost. I just want to put one up. And then I think, who cares? The chain link fence is keeping the dogs out. Yes, my fences are about keeping animals out, not in. And so I don't need the big white and all that. Not a big deal. Now, walls are pretty important on the other side of town at that little place over there that employs a bunch of people and provides hospitality to a whole bunch of people. Those walls are important, but still not to the level of the importance of walls in a city like this back in these ancient times. There was strength and security tied to the walls. If you didn't have them, your city, all of the inhabitants of your city were sitting ducks for any kind of attack that might come. So these walls were important. Okay. So the king gave Nehemiah the supplies and the authority as that designated governor in Judah. And he had this armed escort for his trip to Jerusalem. You know, I know it was a long time ago, but in my head, there's a couple of Humvees, and then there's like a SUV, probably black of some sort, that Nehemiah's in, and maybe a couple of his guys, and then a couple more of those black SUVs, and then maybe a couple more Humvees, and then there might be a, no, no, I don't need a tank for this, but maybe a helicopter, right, that follows the path, okay, armed escort. Why not? I mean, you know, it is what it is. So in verses 11 to 16, when he gets there, first thing he does is he goes and he kind of looks at all the damage. Okay? He doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He's just surveying what's going on. He wants to get a handle on it for himself. Now, he just did all of this based on the word of a few people that he trusted. Okay? But now he's got to see it for himself. So he takes a, he takes a survey And then in verses 17 and 19, he goes to the people there, and he lays out his vision, basically. He assures them that God's hand is in this, and that the words of the king are also supporting this, that we're going to rebuild these walls and these gates. He gets them to buy in, okay? And they get on board. And immediately, immediately, he has opposition. Sambalot, Tobiah... Geshem, opposition, baby, right off the bat. These are three officials who actually show up several times in the book of Nehemiah. So a little history about who they are. Sambalot is the governor of Samaria. This is the region kind of north, northwest of Jerusalem. Tobiah was the governor of the region called Transjordan. It was on the, if you're looking at Jerusalem, and the sea was on this side, he was kind of on this side, the other side. And then Geshem was kind of south of Jerusalem. These guys, this is where these guys are from. And that would be considered northern Arabia. And they ran most of this area around Jerusalem, okay? 
they were the big dogs. Um, and it seems like their opposition is more political than like religious or spiritual. They don't ever come at him about, you know, God doesn't want this and this is against the plan of God. It's all about politics, basically, power. It's all about power to these people. It feels really familiar. Yeah? It feels really, really familiar. <clears throat> Nehemiah, in his prayers and actions, he focuses on God's power and glory rather than just on the situation alone. You're the great and terrible God. You're awesome God. You've made these great covenants. You have made these promises. We have sinned against you. We've done this great iniquity. But please, because you are all powerful, turn your eyes back to us because we are going to turn our ways back to you. We're going to follow you. Right? He's putting, he knows God has all the power in that equation. And anytime he prays, his focus is on that power of God. Something that we could probably learn something from, right? We tend to pray, just pulling out an example here, okay? Oh, Lord, I hurt my leg, which, by the way, is actually starting to feel better in the last 15 to 20 hours. The fall is almost behind me. I hurt my leg, Lord. I'm in so much pain. Could you heal my leg? Lord, I'm, I'm having trouble walking on it. I have trouble... And I know that you can make that leg better, okay? So I can pray about the leg. It's all about the leg. Where instead I could focus on God. I'm going to have to mention the leg because I want the healing of the leg. But make my focus more about, I know you're all powerful. I know you are the great physician. I know that you made this body. You watched me walk off the sidewalk. You watched me collapse in the middle of the parking lot. You know what, you know, I mean, you can put, you can make your focus more on his power and less about the situation itself. That was an easy one for me because I literally just did that. Right? Bless you. And again, bless you. Nehemiah is faced with a lot of difficult issues during what's getting ready to start now as rebuilding these walls. And he leads God's people through this. He keeps pressing on. And he keeps focusing on God's power and the fact that God sent him to do this. You know, I've seen a lot of men and some women walk away from ministries over the years in my, when did I ever become the old person in the church? But in my, let's see, whether that be 37, 30 some odd seven, eight, nine, ten years. There's no 30, 10, is there? That'd be 40 <laughs> years. Seen men and women walk away from ministries. Some of them completely left the church. And then some of them sort of stayed in church. They just quit what they were doing. I mean, I'm talking quit. And um, I wonder... I've always wondered what makes a person do that. I, I, I'm not sure I get it. I understand being tired. I understand being completely worn out. I understand needing a break. But I'm not sure I understand completely walking away from God. And he gave me this job to do. 
and I'm choosing to not do it. Oh, that one's, I, I can't understand that, that mindset. Um, you do it until you're bleeding and you're covered with gashes from the fight. You just keep doing it. Um, in my head, now I'm sure maybe there's something that, but I've been through a few things. You keep doing the work. And that's Nehemiah. He had a job to do. He was here to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city. God had blessed it. God's hand was in it. He knew that by God giving the king, giving him favor with the king in this, clearly, okay, what God wants him to be doing. So all these things start happening, this opposition from these guys, which does end up spreading. And he still presses on, and he still leads the people. We're going to keep building. We're going to keep working together. The building of these walls would fill their need for security and strength. Uh, the walls of the city of Babylon has been recounted in the book of Daniel as being over 380 feet thick and 100 feet high. How, how long is this sanctuary? Do you know? <laughs> You're such a girl. That's me. It's from that wall to that wall. Okay. So, so several lengths of this sanctuary was the width, the, the width of their walls, okay, in Babylon. Because it was about, they were, they were very safe. They were a power. You weren't coming against Babylon easily, okay? That was part of their strength. The ruins of the walls around Jerusalem have been there for over 100 years and approximately one and a half miles of the wall needed to be rebuilt to a thickness of nine feet. That's not much compared to some of these others, but it's going to give them, okay, Zachary's back there trying to calculate the footage. I think he's looking at ceiling tiles to try to figure out how long they are and then how many, sorry, Z, I didn't mean to put you on a rabbit trail. which is 90 to 100 and something feet. Pastor was pretty close. Man, that's crazy. Um, so three, at least three, or if not more, links of this. So they've got to get this, this wall rebuilt. When we look at Nehemiah chapter 3, we see information about who participated in rebuilding the walls. Okay. Anybody ever read through some of the chapters in the book of Nehemiah and, like, had images of conversations you've had, like, I can see, hey, did you go to that thing the other day? Yeah. Who all was there? And you could say, oh, you know, it was most of my family and, you know, some people from the other side. That's how some people would say it. And then some of us would be like, oh, my cousin Jody was there and her sisters Chris and Rhonda and then their kids. And then we also had these people, and they give you this long litany. And you're reading through some of the chapters in Nehemiah and you're going, and these people participated, and it was them, and the 100 with them. And it was them, and the 50 with them. And it was them. Talk about trying to not go to sleep. Good grief. And it's not as bad as the begats, but still. They tell you who all participated. All right? They give you a list of the people who participated. It was a communal exercise. Everybody was involved, including the priests, except for some of the nobles. The rich people. Okay. 
I w- if I was rich, I would say that a little snottier because I could do that and be okay. I'm not, so I'm not going to say it any snottier, but the rich people, a lot of the nobles, they did not participate. It was beneath them, of course, to do this kind of manual work. But even Eliashib, the high priest, helped. Now, I don't know about y'all, but the way I was raised, the preacher is a bigger deal than the rich people in town. I mean, that's just, that's always been how it was in our world. I mean, they're nice and they're friends and we want to be friends with them. We wish more of them would come to our church and plug in. They need to be saved. They need the heart of a giver. You know, Lord can do that. But the preacher's always been more important in our lives than we would consider the rich people. I'm not trying to stroke anybody's ego or anything. That's just how we've, that's how I was raised. But the preacher on the high ground. And here, the high priest is out there helping build the wall and the gates. This isn't uh, new to us. We see it in this church all the time. Where the Hiles doing the hands-on, getting his hands dirty stuff along with everybody else. And, yeah, most every preacher I've ever sat under, except for maybe the first one, and if he did, I would just would have never known it, have all been that way. They've been pastors who will get in there and help put this, uh, an actual fence up, or let's stripe the parking lot, or let's rebuild this thing, or let's clean this thing out. Okay, they've been hands-on. I'm going to guess that's because as priests, high priests, preachers, pastors, they have that heart of God, that servant heart, and so they're willing to do that, where the rich people, they're just out of it. So here's Eliashib helping with this, right? He's helping build the wall. And the opposition continues, continues on into chapter 4. Nehemiah has to lead the people through these challenges. The enemy is speaking against them, conspiring to sneak in and fight them. And Nehemiah continues to pray to God. Now, he prays some prayers about these people that I am glad I wasn't on the other side of this man. Right? I mean, they sound kind of pretty when you read them, but when you think about them, he says the, you know, he's praying that... um, that God would let their iniquity stand. In other words, let that sin stay on them. Does anybody know how this one works? Okay. That wasn't it. Brother Rick, you could tighten that for me. I had no idea where this came from, so I just started using it. Thank you. If I hear a squeak, I'll know it's getting ready to happen again that's what happened. He prays that their iniquity would not be blotted out. No forgiveness for these people. Um, And they continue to work in spite of the threat. The opposition tried intimidation. And when they did, Nehemiah led the people in prayer for God to do his part in giving them protection. But they also did their part by posting guards day and night and carrying weapons while they worked. So, again, we've got the two pieces of the trust there. Asking God for the protection, still doing the part they can by carrying their weapons and doing their guarding. Okay? The opposition tried fake news. (laughs) 
Nehemiah called it for what it was. It's a lie. And was going to inform his boss, the king, that it was fake news. The opposition tried deception. Nehemiah didn't fall for either one of the traps, including fake news spoken by a woman who claimed to be a prophet. Beware of those whose side you are on when you give information. Okay. The opposition then tried to hit Nehemiah by fostering disloyalty from within. Some of those Jewish nobility, especially the ones who didn't want nothing to do with the hands-on work, leave me out of it, it's too dirty for me. Um, he tried to get them to, to become disloyal. Nehemiah prays and later confronts them with their hypocrisy and their disloyalty to God and his people. God gave Nehemiah what he needed to respond to opposition. Nehemiah, he needed discernment for each of the weapons to recognize that they were the errors and to avoid responding incorrectly. He could have fallen for the traps, but he saw through them. He could have, you know, responded in anger. Now, I think it's pretty violent, personally, to ask God to keep the sin back on their hearts and minds. But, hey... It wasn't violent in the way of, you know, he could have come at them. He could, have come, he could have come across in anger. He didn't do any of that. He just kept praying. Lord, strengthen my hands, he said in Nehemiah 6, 9. God doesn't stop the opposition in Nehemiah's situation. Those guys keep doing their thing. So Nehemiah still has to push through. He has to persevere. He has to keep moving forward in the job he was given to do, rebuild the wall and the gates in spite of the opposition. God didn't take it away. We can, we can act wisely and try to prevent things, try to provide some protection, but he wants us to learn how to rely on him more than ourselves. Relying on him even when waiting for the right moment to act is still trusting God while we're doing our part. Waiting, praying, working, knowing that he is working on his part, whatever that needs to be. God, leave that iniquity on them. I don't think I've, I haven't prayed that prayer about somebody in a really long time. Then I had to go and repent about it because it felt like vengeance. But I think back in these days, maybe he had a different relationship with God that I'm supposed to have. I don't know. But um, I purposely now, people pass me, as you can imagine, all all Route 66, all the time. A man almost killed me, him, whoever was in his car, and who was ever in the car coming the other way tonight. Because he was going around me, and that car was right there. And I wasn't slowing down, and they weren't slowing down. And I I used to say, oh, I hope they get a ticket. And now I, I stop myself and I say, I hope you get where you're going in one piece. That's, that's about as hospitable as I can be in that moment. I hope you get where you need to be in one piece. I'm trying to be positive instead of sick them. That's what I want to say. The problems and challenges that came were not only from the outside, but also, of course, those people that were on the inside that, that they tried to cause this disloyalty. Um, and something was happening. In chapter 5, Nehemiah finds out that 
there have been families who ran out of money for food. And so they were selling their children as slaves or mortgaging their fields, their vineyards, their homes to some of these rich Jews in order to try to have money to live. And some couldn't even do that because they'd already borrowed to the limit they could borrow to pay their taxes. These parents and families protested, and Nehemiah hears about it, puts a stop to it, and demands that everything be returned. And then he prays to God. <laughs> He's serious. These people said, yeah, we'll do it. We're going to give everything back. We're going to restore everything we've taken from these families. And he prays that God would destroy the homes and livelihood of anyone who fails to keep their promise to restore these families back to the way they were. <clears throat> and then he goes on and talks about how he has never done that taxation. They talk about it. It he, he says he's kind of like never taken this salary or the money of the governor. It was kind of common practice back then that they would basically tax everybody. Kind of like the story of Robin Hood, right? And Sherwood, the sheriff of Nottingham, just kept taxing people more and more and more. It wasn't necessarily that it was laws, but he just kept taxing people to get more money. Similar things would happen back, back then. And they would earn their wealth that way. And that's not who Nehemiah was. He wasn't taking any of that money. He never taxed them like that for that type of thing. Um, he and everyone that was with him, everyone that was part of his household, part of the work, none of them did either. They just kept working. They were there to build a wall. One of the most helpful things we can do to resist temptation or distractions like, hey, I can be greedy and I can get rich, or hey, I'm lazy and I don't want to work, different things that can distract us, right, and stop us, is to remember that God called us, which means the task is great. That doesn't necessarily mean the task is large. Now, for them, it was large. They're building a wall. In the 500s BC, they don't have caterpillar machines and all that, okay? They're building a wall with their hands, with carts, with, I'm sure, animals, whatever. So it was, a gr it was great as in large. But no matter the size of the task, God gave it to us, and it's great because it's his work to be done. So when I'm wanting to be lazy and not do the work, I have to remember, God gave me this job, and it's a great job to have. Man, I do, oh, I'm switching with Sister Carissa. I bet it's my turn to do the bathrooms next time, which it actually is. And um, I think it's time we switch. I'm like, I hate cleaning the bathrooms here. Hate it. I hate cleaning my own bathroom. I hate cleaning the bathroom here. But task from God, because he's going to want his house clean, and the pastor asks, that's kind of, you know, you don't say no. Okay, so that's a whole different Bible study. And it's a little job, but it's great because it's important to the kingdom. Okay? I'm just saying. It keeps us from becoming distracted. Oh, I'm, you know what? I'm going to wait till the last minute. Oh, and then I got busy. And then somebody invited me to Bloomington. And then it was midnight by the time I got home. I never got around to cleaning. Oh, somebody will clean it next week. Now, I'm only using cleaning as an example because a lot of people tend to think of cleaning the church as menial and not important and all that, and it is. 
So that's why I'm using it as an example. But it could be any kind of job you have in the kingdom. God gave it to you, and it is a great task to be done. And that will keep you from becoming distracted. Um, it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. We have a tremendous work to do today to model a different lifestyle. Man, that is not easy. But boy, they pay attention. If you're doing it all the time, now if you're the person who's not doing it all the time, yeah, they're, well, they're going to notice that too. But they're not noticing your different lifestyle. They're just noticing you're a hypocrite. But if you're living a different lifestyle, they notice. They'll email me. Had an email, well, I had a prayer request here a few weeks back because one of my staff emailed me and said, hey, this has nothing to do with work, but this is what's going on with my, my husband's friend. We're afraid that XYZ might happen to him or that he might do this. Could you guys pray? She is a Jewish, a non, let me rephrase, a non-practicing Jew who I think is really more agnostic than Jew. And the most socially liberal person, I think, that works for me. Yeah, she is. Emails me and asks for prayer. Because they, they watch and they see. Okay? That's our biggest job when you're out in the world is to model that lifestyle. Your job isn't going around yelling at everybody and telling them to quit sinning. Okay? It's not your job. Andrew, it's not your job. I'm just, I'm messing because, you know, you're there. I'm messing. We have to model that life in front of them. If they see peace in you in the midst of confusion, they see that invisible support that keeps you steady and firm under pressure, then they learn there's another way to live than the destructive way that they've been living. They, they, um... They see that you live a life of better choices. It doesn't mean it's all good. It's not all good. People die. People get sick. People lose jobs. Okay, they're not looking for you to have a perfect life. They're looking for you to be making godly choices. That's what they're going to see. In Nehemiah chapter 6, we find that Nehemiah's enemies, now they're trying to trap him. They send messages and say, hey, come meet us. And he discerns that they're going to kill him. So every time they send the message, he says, oh, I'm too busy doing the Lord's work. Got a lot of work to do. Can't come visit you today. And they keep sending the message. And then finally, Sambalot sends an, an open letter with some very serious allegations in it against Nehemiah, demanding that he come and talk about it, even threatening he's going to tell the king. I'm going to tell the king all of these lies about you. And... Nehemiah knows it's all lies and that they're just trying to stop the work. So he says, no. He says, I'm, you know, I'm not coming. Then they try, to, they try to tempt him. They try to make him afraid and try to tempt him to go hide in the temple. Now, he, the place where he would have went to hide is a place that he wasn't supposed to be. He's not the priest. He could have gotten in a lot of trouble for that. And he realizes they're just trying to set me up. And doesn't run. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to stand firm in this. And we see also 
it mentions that Sambalot had sent an open letter. Back in these days, it was common for these letters to be sealed. And by having an open letter, it meant that anybody who came across the messenger or around it could have read it. It would have been rumors. It was their own version. It was Sambalot's own version of Facebook, basically, that open letter. So through all of this, Nehemiah is still doing the work. Now, once again, he prays, God, don't forget the evil that Sambalot and Tobiah and that fake prophet lady and these people with them are doing. Don't forget the evil. Man, I would not want to have been those people. Holy cow. It's like, you know how you make jokes about somebody's doing something and let me get out of the room before the lightning strikes? This is serious stuff. So the wall gets completed in 52 days, which was incredibly fast, the walls and the gates. And when all the enemies heard about this in these surrounding areas, they're afraid, they lose their self-confidence because they realize, Scripture says they realize that the work had to be done with the help of God. This wasn't just man. There's some supernatural going on here. So Nehemiah does this work. He keeps moving forward despite the opposition, okay, despite people trying to kill him, despite them trying to get him or what would have probably been arrested or whatever their version of that might have been, trying to get his own people to turn against him. He keeps moving forward. He keeps leading the people. Let's keep working. Let's keep working. Let's keep working. Let's keep building in spite of it all. He persevered through this part. Now, the second part of Nehemiah, which we'll do in December, I believe goes into that, you know, the next part. That will be the next part. Goes into the next part. So, I'm going to leave you there. That Nehemiah is praying and working while he's persevering. Pray and work while you persevere. Preacher, I know you have something to add. What? Don't lie. Okay, Lord, please don't lay that against him. What? He was serious. He was serious about some of that stuff he said about this. Amen. Persevering. Uh, it seems to be the word that's been coming across several several messages and sermons that uh, I've been sitting through. And I think we could all admit past year, two years, three, four, five, life has been hard. Can I get an Amen anybody who has gone through life and it's been a piece of cake come come counsel with me <laughs> because life has been hard we've had challenges we've had some we've had some downfalls we've had some opposition and not only personally but as a corporate body of the church there's been there's been hardships that have come not just this church but I'm talking uh, all, all over we've had to adjust we've had to do things that we normally don't do but through it all, God has been blessing. God has been blessing. We've sat through several of the uh, sectional meetings and, and district meetings and talking to uh, Brother Calthorpe uh, the, other, the other day. And, you know, we have been blessed through all of the pandemic, through all of the, the hardships and the readjustments the church has, has had. We've had record offerings that have come through at all the divisions Sunday school the youth and uh, ladies so uh, God is still doing work 
I say, if you're going through something right now, keep going. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it can be frustrating. Yeah, you, uh, you want to quit. You want to stop. But God blesses and God anoints and God strengthens those who will just put one foot in front of the other. I'm a living testimony that if you don't give up, God won't give up on you. Amen. Thank you for, for that. Uh,